Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Fate's Wide Wheel. Uh, Sam and Dennis are here. Not at Project Quantum Leap. Uh, half of us are your Project Quantum Leap. <laughs> half of us you're, are. You're, you're at Project Quantum Leap. I am, we'll say I'm over in Stallions Gate. There you I, go. I am in the neighboring New Mexico City, about a half hour away from, from Project Quantum Leap. I love uh, it. So yes, we have another episode of, of Face Wide Wheel. We have another episode of Baby Watch. Ah, yes, indeed. 2018. Yeah. How's that going, Sam? Man, you know it's 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 all right. Uh, it, it's been a little stressful. There's there's definitely a little anxiety, but for the most part, uh, you know, I mean, Jess is doing great. Um, we're just uh, a week overdue, so you know, uh, it happens. We we hit about that with with Harrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah. Well, in in the interest of of, of I guess. Um, too much information. Uh, you know, we're going with midwives, and sure. uh, they're you know one of their tenets is as long as the mother and baby are healthy, they want things to proceed as naturally as possible. So there's no rush to do any sort of inducing or anything like that, and um, which has been great. And and uh, we certainly feel like we're in very good hands. But I think there gets to be that point when. You hope something's going to happen, not necessarily even that you expect it to, because it's, you know, in Mother Nature's hands, but you, you hope it's going to happen. And when it doesn't, you start to sort of realize that your life is just sort of on hold until it does. Exactly. <laughs> when, when we hit that point, like any time during the night when Betsy rolled over, I would jar wake and I'd be like, is it it? Is it time? Is it time? Right. Uh, and and then it's going to happen. I mean, for us, like we had the uh, we had kind of like the cliche stereotypical thing where the first sign was Betsy's water broke. Mm-hmm. And I was at work, and she called me, and I came home. And we used the midwives at the same hospital. And like you right. said, yeah, they, they want things to proceed as naturally as possible. So we were home probably for eight hours yeah, before we actually went to the hospital. And it's just this weird, like, our lives are about to drastically change. What do we do right now? Right. So we watched an episode of The Crown. Nice. Because that's Betsy's comfort food. We tried to lay down and get a couple hours sleep. That didn't work. Yeah. We laid down for like half hour. We're like, yeah, that's not happening. Uh, so we got back up, watched a little bit more of The Crown. At 6 a.m., I went out to McDonald's and I got us breakfast. <laughs> and then we went to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that is uh, sort of the picture that has been painted as a potential uh, outcome for us as well. You know, the idea that you, you kind of labor at home as long as you can until it gets to be the point where it's like, no, you, you need to be in hospital because this is, you're in an advanced stage of, of labor and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I, I, ultimately things are good. And one of the things that we've started to do, which has been helpful for us, even though I feel like a couple of days ago, we wouldn't even have imagined it is starting to just make plans, you know, like even this, like the fact that you and I are recording tonight, it's one of the reasons because we, you know, we've sort of put things in a very nebulous state as to when we're going to record and I just reached out to you and was like hey are we going to do this you know what do you think about Wednesday and uh and we just did it because it, it, to me 
and, and to you as well, I think there was the possibility that we wouldn't be doing this. That sure. if something had happened, no, yeah, well, you know, we should. Sure. Yeah. We, but as it stands, there's no reason to put everything else on hold because we're just waiting for this because that's just going to drive us crazy. Yeah, you got to live your life. And yeah. yeah, our plan to bank episodes did not happen. Oh. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, no, sir. We'll, we'll figure out. We'll figure out what we'll what we'll do. We'll 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 go on hold for a couple for a couple weeks. Or yeah. uh, for Betsy, uh, Betsy and I were talking uh, a little bit earlier, and I was like, I don't know, like maybe Sam will just take a couple episodes off, and then you know we'll find another guest host or something. Right. And she was like, I would like to guest host. Uh, not nice. necessarily to replace you. It's just that because of the nature of things, oftentimes she cannot guest host with us because while we're doing this, she's taking care of our our yeah. son. Uh, but a lot of time I give her comments by proxy, and I have a couple of comments on this episode because we watched this uh, episode together today because she worked yeah. from home today, and it's kind of slow at, at her work right now. So she had she had time to sit and watch this episode with me, which, by the way, is Rebel Without, Rebel Without, a, Without a, clue. a Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, moving on from all of the the personal life talk, um, <laughs> this this episode um, has uh, our director is James Whitmore Jr., a name we've certainly heard before. Uh, Two in a row. Yeah, Teleplay yeah. was written by uh, Randy Holland um, and Paul Brown, with the story coming from Nick Harding and Paul Brown. Uh, it'll be interesting to talk about that. Because we had some comments even before we started that uh, I think sometimes when you have that sort of dynamic uh, can lead to some of the issues that, that I that I might have had with it. Uh, anyway, our air date is November the 30th, 1990. Uh, the leap date is September 1st, 1958. And Sam has leapt into Shane Funnybone. Yes, that's right. I couldn't make that up if I tried. Mm-hmm. Shane Funnybone Thomas, and we're uh, just south of Big Sur, California. We are. TV guide description. Sam's a wild one. <laughs> On the road with the 50s biker gang, which includes a chick who's hip to Jack Kerouac, but who's going to get whacked unless Sam, Scott Bakula, helps her? Oh, boy. Dig. The last sentence is, dig. Yeah. It is indeed. Um, yeah. A couple of things. Let's get this out of the way right off the bat, because uh, for those uh, that, that are uh, not familiar um, with the sort of time period that this episode takes place in and, and the influences on this episode, um, the Rebel Without a Clue title is incredibly misleading. Uh, there are were a lot of people, especially on the message boards, uh, going back, you know, almost 20 years who assumed that because of the title, the episode was a takeoff of uh, Rebel Without a Cause. This episode literally has nothing to do with Rebel Without a Cause well, it's at the same all. Thing. Yeah, like last episode, The Great Spontini is a takeoff of The Great Santini. Right. And, and the two plots have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Exactly. So so while the title itself is is certainly a takeoff of that, the episode's content has nothing to do with it. Now, I think that you could certainly make the argument that the influence that that film had on this particular generation um, certainly uh, is maybe relevant. But as far as the content of the film compared to the content of the episode, nothing at all. The, the episode certainly has uh, a lot in common with the film The Wild Ones, which which is uh, name-checked even in that um, episode description. Um, and then the the wild one, it's, it's also, I think, worth noting that Marlon Brando in that film uh, wears a costume almost exactly like what 
Dylan is wearing Diedrich Bader uh-huh. uh, wears and to, to the point that at the beginning of the episode, I, I, I mean, Diedrich Bader looks incredibly like Marlon Brando um, in that in, in that film. So um, while my cat decides to take a trip behind the blinds here, uh, it's it, it certainly has um, a direct influence on the episode. There are some scenes and and certainly the you know the motorcycle gang stuff that is very familiar to that. Uh, I actually wanted to correct myself because I mentioned something about the motorcycle gang in the film The Wild One being called the. Beast. Beatles. There is a motorcycle gang called the Beatles. That's Lee Marvin's motorcycle gang, which is a rival to the motorcycle gang that Marlon Brando runs, which is actually called the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Um, so for any of you rock and roll fans out there, modern day rock and roll fans, that's the uh, the way that that band got their name. Um, and then, of course, we have the influence of Jack Kerouac. And if you really want to get wasted and play a drinking game, uh, every time they say the words on the road in this episode, take a shot and you might be dead by the time the episode's over. Or at least sure. as drunk as Kerouac. Uh, or you could be. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would have been a perfectly acceptable title to this episode as well, is simply on the road. Yeah, right. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, you're uh, you locked up there a little bit. Google ah. Hangouts locked up there a little bit. We'll edit that. Gotcha. Out. Or maybe we won't. Yes. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, these things happen. Yeah. Apologies, by the way, to anyone who's listens to our recent episode, Black on White on, White Fire. on Fire. Yeah. So yeah, we should call that out. So uh, uh, this morning, Larry Ganey, uh, host of the Guest Room podcast, who uh, host, uh, guest hosted on our episode for One Strobe Over the Line, he sent Sam and I a Facebook message saying that he was listening to Black on White on Fire. Um, and there was a bathroom break that we forgot to edit out. Uh, and since there is one bathroom at, at Project Quantum Leap that is very close to, uh, we'll call it the control room, uh, <laughs> uh, you actually heard bathroom sounds uh, yes. during the recording. So uh, if you have listened to that, our apologies for that. We're going to be working on editing that uh, out and, and putting a new version up there. Yes. Uh, so if you're listening to this episode a, a few months, a couple of years from now, and if you listen to Black on Water and Fire, hopefully you will not be hearing that. But yes, as, as it was originally aired, uh, yes. And, yes. And, and we do this in the interest of full disclosure to mm-hmm. our listeners who we love and appreciate and apologize that we had to put you through that. And Dennis is being very kind when he says we forgot to do that because what, what he really should and could say is Sam forgot to do that. <laughs> you, you know, I, you send me the sound files before we upload. I could very easily uh, do a quick quality uh, check, but I don't. But anyway. it's, it's just a mess. It's a mess over here, it, man. It, what, yeah, what can it's, you say? It, it's all good. I totally Speaking understand. of messes, the beginning messes. of this episode. <laughs> yeah, so Sam leaps in and... Uh, Into a fine goes, mess. Uh, he just goes all willy-nilly all over the road. This is probably one of the more physically precarious situations he's ever leaped into. Aside from hanging upside down on a trapeze. Yeah, it's you know, it is interesting because I feel like a lot of the leap-ins that we've gotten, maybe with the exception of the Leap Home uh, Part 2, which, you know, he leaps in while they're getting fired upon. Fair uh, enough. Yes. As, being, as, as being one of the more physically dangerous uh, leap-ins, because a lot of the leap-ins we've had recently, uh, and, and just the majority in general, tend to be sort of more funny situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you could maybe make the argument that the Great Spontini seems physically threatening, but ultimately it's, it's a gag, you know? Uh, whereas in this case, yeah, he ends up wiping out on the motorcycle. Um, and as we're reminded a couple of times throughout the episode, you know, 
tears the jeans, gets a pretty bad little uh, gash there, bruise, uh, road rash, if you will, on his leg. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, spends almost the entirety of this episode as more of a fish out of water than we've seen him recently. Um, I mean, sure, in Spontini, he's struggling with the, the magic stuff, but he handles everything else very well and kind of confidently. In this episode, it, it, he, we get a struggling Sam for a lot of it, I think. We do? Yes, it should also be worth noting, and this was in uh, Matt Dale's book, Beyond the Mirror Image, um, Scott Bakula learned how to ride a motorcycle, like basically in like one quick half hour lesson from his uh, stuntman body double Diamond Farnsworth. Yeah. Uh, so kudos, kudos to Scott Bakula. Uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, aside from the, uh, you know, from the motorcycle element at the beginning, he does a pretty good job of like, even though he's a fish out of water, he owns it. Like, uh, sure. He, he, like he doesn't, he doesn't freeze up. And just do something stupid when he's forced later on to draw a caricature of Mad Dog. He actually he he does something pretty funny. Well, uh, later on, uh, there's also uh, when he's trying to rescue Becky, uh, he cracks a, a gun smoke joke uh, as well. And so he is out of his element, but I also feels like he I feel like he handles it fairly well. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. You're absolutely right because I, I suppose what I mean by that is um, he's he's struggling, but it's in a very different way than what we've seen him. This isn't the stammering, charming, you know, goofy Sam for the most of this episode. I, I, I feel like this Sam is a very you know driven and um, uh, uh, I don't know more serious. Sam for the majority of the episode, which is fitting considering you know, what he's there to do. But but we don't uh, see him being successful a lot within the course of this episode. You know what sure. I mean? Like he's sure. he, it's even even like the stuff with Jack Kerouac, for instance, which we'll get to later. You know, he fails there the first time around. You know, he he fails mostly with the gang motorcycle gang up until you know the the sort of climactic fights, if you will. So it's I, I just think it's kind of interesting to see him struggle so much without being the more kind of affable guy that that we normally see when he's struggling with things. Sure. Well, I mean, and this will speak into the opening moments of, uh, of the episode after the after the wreck, and then we go to opening credits, and then we come back, and uh, a character who we're introduced to as Mad Dog, uh, who was almost wiped out by by Sam's accident, uh, he's he's pretty pissed off. Yes. And so, like right from the beginning, Sam is met with hostility by this other person. So it puts. Sam into a place to be constantly struggling and it's not just him like we we learned from the uh, from the dialogue in this first scene that the person that Sam has leaped into Shane he's only been with the motorcycle gang for a week now right Um, we get information from Al later on that that Shane uh he's kind of the I can't remember how how it was put he's kind of like the gang clown like the class clown of the gang and so I have yeah he may be funny but also he's probably the one who's maybe a little bit more picked on than everybody else sure maybe I'm I'm projecting a little bit down there so he's already kind of put into a place like one he's a fish out of water and two he's being met with hostility physical hostility like he has a knife pulled on him in this first scene he's being met with physical hostility by everyone around him so it, it does 
very easily put him into a place where he's struggling. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's totally right on because the the way that Mad Dog played by. Mark Boone Jr., who Sons of Anarchy fans will know as Bobby Elvis. Um, Bobby Elvis. And uh, uh, he he is definitely, you know, even in the diner scene, um, it is clear that the other bikers don't take him as seriously. Um, and that, you know, Mad Dog picks on him relentlessly. Um, and I think Sam tries to deal with that in a number of ways. Um, you know, it's clear that he tolerates it for the most part up until we get to, uh, the, the caricature scene. Um, at that point, you know, he, there, there are, they almost come to blows and everything. There's actually a very interesting scene we'll get to with, with Al, uh, as well. But, uh, but at the top of this episode, yeah, when, when Mad Dog pulls the knife on him and punches him and, um, you know, Becky, uh, it was played by Josie Bissett, who most people uh, would know from 90s television uh, as a star of Melrose Place, uh, which ran for 172 episodes. Let's just marinate on that for a second, Dennis. Quantum Leap ran for 97 episodes. Melrose there Place, is- 172 there is no justice. There is really no justice. Um, but one of the things that we remarked about before we even started uh, is that a lot of the actors within this episode had uh, a good deal of success. You know, and she certainly would be one of them. She's still working to this day. Um, Diedrich Bader, who plays Dylan, uh, lots of work. Uh, obviously, uh, Drew Carey show, which was like over 200 episodes, I think he was on. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- you know, numerous other roles that he's had. Uh, you know, Mark. Jr. with the Sons of Anarchy and, and, and there's a lot of other stuff he's done too. Him, he's not just I, limited to that. Yeah, I was looking him up earlier like uh, like a bio I read for him like Sons of Anarchy didn't even pop up. Like it, they, they reference Memento. He's in that movie. Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, Batman. He, he's in at least uh, uh, the Christopher right. Nolan reboots. And I, I, I tweeted this out and I, I tagged him earlier today. What I love about him is like he's got such an authentic look and he yeah. comes across like... He doesn't come across as an actor. Like when I see him, I I just take for granted. Like, like I don't think of him as an actor. Like he's just like a guy who just wandered into this TV show or movie. Yes, and he's just there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and the guys, the guys had a career that spanned almost forty years. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, he's been around a long time, and he's done a lot of stuff. And I, you know, I think for me. Um, and I'm sure other people will have other things that they know him for. But for me, you know, definitely his role in Sons of Anarchy is, is probably sure. what I remember him most for. And, I, you know, he ends up being one of the characters on that show that you can, you know, actually kind of like and not feel too horrible about liking him. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> most did, of the other characters on that show, if you like them, you, yeah. you, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, I, I feel like we've talked about this before. Did you watch Sons of Anarchy all the way to the end? No, I, I've not finished it yet. I got I, there. There's just some stuff that happened in like season five and season six. It got so harsh, sure, and so that I just I needed to take a break, and I've not yet gone back to it. It's uh, yes, um, I, I, I will say not to spoil anything, but almost all of the main characters end up dying by sure. the end of, by the end of the series, and which and, makes sense. And, and Bobby Elvis is is one of them, and his yeah, yes, yeah, his. Ending, I mean. It, his ending is not kind. 
it, it, it makes sense. I mean, for those that don't know, it, the 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 program is is based on Hamlet to the point that like during the first season in particular, I mean, it, it almost feels like they're just legitimately you know, scenes from Hamlet being lifted and inserted into this biker uh, show. And it carries over throughout the whole series, you know, right down to when they travel to Ireland, for instance, is very reminiscent of when, you know, Hamlet leaves and and then comes back. And so, I mean, it's, 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 it is, it's Hamlet on motorcycles. Um, And, and there are, I mean, without a doubt, there's some incredible work that's done in the show and, and it deserves, uh, a lot of praise, but I, I just felt like it got to a point where it was, it's, it started to become difficult to watch and not in a good way. <laughs> no, there was uh, one particular character's death. Uh, it, it seemed like they, they went out of the, out of their way to, to show it as graphically as possible. Yeah. And that's when I was kind of like, you know what? I'm, I, yeah, I need to step away and, and, and stop watching the show. There's a sort of a one-two punch that really did it for me is that there's one character who's actually, without giving too much away, is the child of one of the main characters. Mm-hmm. And what happens to her is, yeah. And then there's one of the characters who's in prison and the things that happen to him. That's, just, that's, that's the, one. The, yeah. the one. the one in prison, that's the one that I, I had to walk away after. Same here. After that's, that. that's, yeah, that's exactly what did it for me. And yeah. which is, yeah, anyway... Uh, that said, uh, you know, it still is an excellent show and, sure, and yeah. if you, you know, but, um, but yeah, so you meet right off the bat, you, you know, you meet these three characters, uh, uh, mad dog, Dylan and Becky, and, and they're all recognizable, I think to people that, especially if you're watching television in the nineties. Um, and, uh, it, it, it's clear that, you know, Becky has sort of a fondness for, funny bone you know she gets dylan to call mad dog off of him uh dylan seems to be at this point you know it's interesting because dylan is almost likable in a in a sort of you know bad boy kind of nice guy way Mm -hmm. bad boy biker with a heart of gold (laughs) yes uh i I made a note later on and and i'll go more into a depth to it then like uh people like dylan are, are are the scariest kind of people in the worst kind of way yeah, that's and a great I'll, point. And, and I'll get to and I'll get to that to that point later on. But yeah, but yeah, and the first thing, and especially like for me, because I remember Diedrich Bader mostly from the Drew Carey show, sure, you know, which was a sitcom. He was a very likable character. But at the time when I first started watching the Drew Carey show, I knew Diedrich Bader from this episode of of Quantum Leap. So it's in this weird like weird turn in my head. Uh, but yeah, yeah. This first scene, like he comes across like a very like reasonable, nice guy, but then things obviously take a turn. Yeah, later on in the in the episode, it's so, yeah. funny because one of the things that I can't help but associate him with, uh, just because my sister, for whatever reason, seemed to be fairly obsessed with the film, is uh, Beverly Hillbillies. That's right, because <laughs> he played Jethro in in, uh, in Beverly Hillbillies. That was and, the other uh, thing. That that is a pretty decent bad movie. Oh yeah, but you got it right, man. It's bad. <laughs> it, it it is. I remember like the like the one the one scene from the trailer that they played over and over again on TV was the one point where they're they're first coming into the city and they accidentally cut somebody off on an LA freeway and, and a guy says you cut us off and he pulls out a gun 
and uh, uh, oh god, what's uh, Jim Barney? Jim yeah, Barney, Jim, yeah. yeah, Jim Barney, who played Uncle Jed. That's real nice, son. This here's what I carry. Stands up and he points the shotgun down at him, and the car speeds off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just a, a window into America's future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're anyway. not a political podcast, but anyway. anyway. Uh, so, uh, so what yeah, happens next, Dennis? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so in, in this first scene, Mad Dog is mad because uh, Sam almost ran him off the road when he when he wrecked. Yes. Um, and, and like you said, Becky stands up for him. And so they kind of come to a truce, but then Mad Dog pulls out his knife, cuts the fuel line on on Sam's motorcycle, um, and you know, so and so you know, Becky has some thoughts about that. But you know, Dylan points out, "I was like, hey, he's a big boy. There's a diner twenty a twenty minute walk down the road. We'll be waiting for you." Yeah. Uh, and then as uh, as they're driving off, Mad Dog says, "If you mess with me again, I can't tell if he was saying you're going to get jacked or you're going to get japped." Oh. I feel I feel like he was saying you're going to get japped, and that's a racist term. But like putting today's language on it, I was thinking he was saying jacked at first. I yeah I thought he was saying jacked because because it gets there's there's a couple of other times when it gets said and it sounds much more like jacked towards the end of the episode yeah because um, I feel like yeah. there's there's one point here I think in the next scene that we're coming up on where Sam repeats the 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 phrase to Al and it even sounds like Scott Bakula is saying jacked hmm and I didn't have a chance to look it up before we start and I wondered if yeah if, if, yeah if, if interesting it was a thing yeah. But anyway, uh, so they they all speed off, leaving Sam alone with his uh, bike with the with the cut fuel line, which gives a chance for Al to show up. And uh, under the category of of Al knows everything, yes, Al Al knows motorcycles. Interesting note here: it, Matt mentions in his book that in this scene we don't hear the imaging chamber door open. Which is not true on the Blu-rays. You do hear it. And mm. it makes me wonder if that was something... I, I don't know what format he was watching the episode. I'm assuming he was watching the British DVDs. Um, and it makes me wonder, is that something that I, I... I can't imagine they corrected that for this Blu-ray release. Because oh, as we know, oh, God, God no. love Mill Creek for giving us Blu-rays of this. They didn't really do a lot of work. Oh, God, no. So, yeah. so, so it makes me wonder, is that something that just like a sound effect... Because we know that that type of stuff has happened. You, you know, It's not unique to Quantum Leap either, where like a sound effect or an audio thing gets dropped off accidentally within the transition to DVD, you know, to digital media or whatnot. Sure. Um, because it's present in the Blu-ray. You can hear mm-hmm. the chamber door open and you hear it close. Um, so I, I, I just wondered, it's like, hmm. And, and I think that because we've talked about this before, there's a lot of different ways to watch these episodes these days. And I wonder now, it's like, I wonder I wonder what it's like on iTunes. I wonder what it's like on Hulu. I wonder, okay. Not so much that I'm going to go and watch it on those platforms, but, For sure. but it, it, I'm curious sometimes. You know, it's a weird thing, you know, like after last week's episode, uh, me going on and on about how I feel like the great Spontini comes earlier because of the hand link, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when it comes to inconsistencies with the with the chamber door and the sounds, that is something I, I let really wash over me because I feel like they are constantly inconsistent with that throughout the series. Sure. And since they put such a little emphasis on the science of everything, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's, that, that's not something I pay a, a whole lot to a lot of right. times. Right. Um, but anyway, so Al shows up and 
uh, yeah, he know he knows bicycles and or he knows <laughs> yeah bicycles. He knows motor. <laughs> Uh, he knows motorcycles and uh, yes, he does. Yeah, and um, it's great because we get another you know kind of um, meta moment, honestly, within the show where Sam even has the line of like, you know, let me guess, you know, is there anything you don't know? You know that that, that sort of kind of like wink to the audience, I think, in a way. Um, I remember you saying that from a from a previous episode, looping in without a net. How, yeah, how it's kind of a wink, wink to the audience of yeah, acknowledging the trope. Well, yeah, and, and then the crazy thing is, is in a way, by doing that, it it almost disarms you in a way. It, as an audience member, I no longer am just sitting there going like, "Of course, Al knows about this." You know, sure. it's, it's 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 like they're acknowledging it too, and it's fun, and it's not it's not too overt. It's not like you know Scott Bakula is looking directly into the camera, being like, "Is there anything this guy doesn't know?" But but it's but it's still it's it's a nice little bit of interplay between the two of them, and I think it, it helps us as audience members to sort of almost forgive the fact that it's necessary in a way for Al to have all of this knowledge in order to narratively to, to, to work in all the situations that Sam gets put in. For sure. Yeah. I will say, um, um, there, there's just some great scenery in this episode of where they're shooting along mm-hmm. the coast. Uh, this particular scene as well, like them, like the little like cliff area or whatever you want to call it. They're, but they're standing along there. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because one of the things that I was thinking about as I was watching it and, and, Again, in the interest of full disclosure, I just watched it, uh, you know, no more than like two hours ago. Uh, one of the things I was thinking uh, is how beautiful the episode looks mm-hmm. on Blu-ray. There are there are times when a lot of those exterior shots. Uh, I mean, clearly it's a television show that was shot in 1990, but I guarantee you this is the best it has ever looked. I mean, it, it looks really, really good on Blu-ray, and and um, it's interesting because you can tell the, the the contrast between the interiors and the exteriors. Like the interior shots look good, but not quite as as but beautiful. They are clearly on a soundstage, <laughs> right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, they're, yes. they're, they're, they are clearly on a set, but. But yes, yeah. But those exteriors, man, it's 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 stuff like that. Just makes you like happy to have it on Blu-ray and to have like an HD TV to watch to it on. That. You know, it also put me in mind if you are if you are a Stephen King fan, I can't remember the name of it. Whatever his uh, Bizarre Bad Dreams. That's it. It was his last collection of short short stories. Uh, I love Stephen King. I actually enjoy his short stories more than his novels. I think. Mm. Uh, and so Bizarre Bad Dreams. I think it came out three or four years ago. Um, and there is one story, which, which I won't spoil, I won't dive too much into, but it does uh, involve a guy riding his motorcycle, like, along a coast, like, along, like, the very cliffs, like, kind of like you're seeing in this episode here. Uh, and the story itself was very much inspired by, and Stephen King, like, admitted it himself, it's very much inspired by the, the closing scene of Sons of Anarchy. Oh, interesting. And... Uh, so yeah, I, I can't remember the name of it. I'll, I'll look it up and maybe put it in the show notes. But it's it's really it's really interesting. It's like a guy and his motorcycle surviving in a in a post apocalyptic world where there's been some kind of nuclear bomb go off, mm-hmm. and it's just like basically he's he's waiting to get sick because eventually everybody does get sick, and it's, so it's just like him and this dog and his motorcycle living out their final days. Man. In a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I love Stephen King's short stories, and even more, and almost all of his short story collections, either before every story or after every story, he will 
explain his inspiration for the story. Yeah. And sometimes the inspiration is even more interesting than the short story. It's well, that's yeah. One of the, I mean, he, I, I you know, I, I love him as well, and I often think of him in, in a lot of ways. And I know some people have have, have kind of looked look at me a little cockeyed when I bring this up, but I often think of him as kind of like, you know, the American Dickens in a lot of ways because mm. his stories are so um, rich, and, and and the way that the characters are, are sort of drawn, uh, in my opinion, is very reminiscent um, of what Dickens does. But anyway, that aside. Uh, Sometimes him writing about what he's writing about, you're right, is is more, you know, is almost more interesting than the stories that he tells. And, and his, you know, his sort of autobiography slash, you know, writer's manual, whatever you want to call it on writing sure. is, is, is a clear indication of that because it's, it's a beautiful little book, you know, and I say it, that sounds like it's. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm a big, big fan of that, of that book yeah. um, in particular. For sure. Where he tells story, basically tells a lot of stories about, you know, not only his life, but, but writing some of the books that he, that he wrote, you know, especially some of his early work. Um, sure. You know, and, 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 and even talks about the, you know, the accident um, where he was hit by the car. And, and, and yeah. he, you yeah. know, it's, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's a treasure. Yeah, he is. By the way, I, I can't remember if I read one on the, co- uh, the podcast before, but if you are a time travel fan, which you may be, if you're listening to, to our podcast, <laughs> uh, 11-22-63, uh, which revolves around the Kennedy assassination in a time travel story, by far my favorite novel of his. So if you haven't checked that out, go check that out. Yeah. Yeah, I've not yet. I have it. I have a copy of it, as Dennis well knows. He commented on it when he saw it once upon a time. But I need to. I need to get to it. I just, yeah. yeah. Maybe it'll be next. Anyway, maybe um, next. Yeah. Uh, for, forget forget the miniseries that he wrote, uh, starring James Franco. Uh, bypass that. But yes, read the novel. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it's interesting because that's not going to be the first time we talk about James Franco in this episode. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I got a little. I got a little something to throw yeah, in here later. Okay, but anyway, so so we end up at the diner. It's Ernie's diner, and Ernie is played by. Let me pull him up here. Or you may have his name already pulled up here. Uh, I, I did have it, and then I just misplaced it because I was uh, looking at Mark Boone Jr. Teddy uh, he Wilson is played by yes, Teddy Wilson, who we have seen before in Pool Hall Blues. That's right, where he played Jimmy, Jimmy Grady, um, and we loved him in that episode. And uh, once again, you know, it's hard not to love him in this episode. Uh, unfortunately, as, as we noted in Pool Hall Blues, this would be one of the last things that he did as he uh, unfortunately passed away uh, in 1991 at the uh, young age of 47. Um, just, uh, you know, what he does in those two little guest starring spots is enough for me to just be like, I would watch that guy do just about anything. Sure, and maybe what because we we see that with uh, a few other actors throughout the series. I can't remember the names right now, but the the one actor who pops up in the pilot, then he pops up in Good Night, Dear Heart, and he pops up in in the trilogy episode in the last season. There yes. are some there are some TV shows that they are kind of anthology. And they'll, and they'll just use like the same pool of actors, and they'll use them over and over again, and they play different characters. And sometimes I wish more shows did that. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, kind of like a, a repertory company to, to use theater terms. And in this day and age, it is something that I think is rare. Uh, you know, 
we've not seen something like that happen really since like the Star Trek days where you might have an actor, you know, play like three or four different characters, which obviously was, you know, they benefited from the fact that they used a lot of makeup and, you know, prosthetics and stuff like that. But um, it's not something you've seen for the past, like, you know, 15 years or so from TV. Uh, It's basically, you know, you, you play a role and that's that. Unless... I mean, obviously, you've got shows like your Law and Orders and your Chicago Fires and et cetera, which I, you know, we know for a fact living in Chicago, there are actors that have been on there more than once playing completely different roles. So, uh, actually, know. I don't know because I, I thought I had that understanding too, but then I took an on-camera class a little over a year ago, uh, and actually I had explained to me by the instructor that, that maybe it's changed, but like actually those the, the Dick Wolf shows, like the Law and Orders and all the Chicago shows, they actually had the rule that if you appeared on the show in any sort of recognizable character, you could not be on that show again as a different character for another two years. Well, that might be true for yeah. for, for two years, but I yeah. know, but I, I mean, I've got I've got you know a few friends of mine that have been on some of those shows that have been on them more than once. Ah, uh, okay. Um, now I, I can't speak to. I'm pretty sure the one it would have to be probably there was probably like three years between his appearances, but he was he he played different characters, you gotcha, know. He was okay. on a, you know, but but I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of a lost thing in a lot of ways. Uh, you don't find it as much. I mean, part of that is because you don't have a lot of anthology shows anymore, for sure. Um, but uh, like you, know, I would think like uh, Mash had a very clear yeah. like before um, uh, Harry Morgan came on the show as Colonel Potter. He played a completely different role in a guest starring role a couple of years yeah. before he joined the cast. Well, and it's also not unique to American television because, as we have discussed upon this show before, uh, especially when Matt Dale was on, uh, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, uh, and Doctor Who did that quite a few times. Um, and the funny thing is, is that there are a couple of actors. Um, one in particular, her name was Jean Marsh, and she was on a, an episode in like one of the first two or three seasons. So this is like 1964, 1965. She came back in like 1988. Which was towards the end of the run, so she was like she almost kind of bookended the original run of the show in a way, which is fascinating. Um, and there have been a couple of actors that have been on the new series that were in you know small parts uh, on the original series as well, and uh, a number of people. In fact, one of the doctors, um, Colin Baker, he played a role uh, at one point that was sort of like a you know not not bit part, but certainly a smaller part, and then came back to play a doctor uh, uh, in a couple of seasons. So it's, yeah, it's not unique to, to us television, but uh, it's something that doesn't happen quite as much anymore. Sure. Sure. Anyway, in the interest of time, let's get on to, let's get on to Ernie's diner. We're at Ernie's diner. Ernie's diner. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's serving up this group of bikers and I'm sure like his thought is just like, Oh, just, just please get out of here without things going <laughs> violent. You know, I mean, you know, bikers being what they are, but also, I mean, even bringing to the fact, like, like, like the race thing, they're all white, and he, you know, he's black, and blah, blah, blah. yeah, just please get out of here, please don't get violent. Um, well, and it's interesting to note here that the parallel earlier between the Wild One and the episode is that in the Wild One, uh, the biker gangs come into a town and they basically take the town over. Oh, um, okay. And 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 you know, the the movie came out in like fifty. Oh, gosh, I had it in front of me before. But it it came out prior to when this episode is set. Uh, Yeah, it came out in 53. So it's not out of the question, you know, for Ernie to have maybe been aware of something like that. Sure. And and this notion that, you know, because the film, in a way, was always 
almost pushed as like a docudrama, you know, as in gotcha. like this is something real that happens. You know, these are these are what these kids are doing these days, sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, Brando has the famous line where they, you know, he's asked, "What are you rebelling against?" And he's like, "What do you got?" And so the idea that it's just like whatever, whatever there is, I'm I'm happy to tear it down, kind of thing. And, and Ernie, like you said, definitely feels that he's a little nervous about this. But something happens uh, that almost makes Ernie soften towards them and certainly try to connect with Dylan, which is very interesting. Sure. And that is the the connection that Dylan was in the Korean War. Ernie had a son, Daryl, who was was over in Korea. He is still over there. He is a POW, MIA. And uh, Ernie is holding out hope that he is going to come back. Um and Dylan is trying to be nice and respectful of, of, of this old man holding on to that dream. And Mad Dog is not having any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mad Dog's a dick. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and then it turns out that also Ernie is holding on to Daryl's prized motorcycle. The Black Shadow. The Black Shadow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also important in the scene to note is like we get some... Uh, some really great exchange between between Dylan and Becky. Becky is a writer. Dylan wants her to read some of her writing, and he was like, "Oh, I like the the, the short story. I can't remember like he 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 name checks like a story that she had written recently and read him, and that he really enjoyed it. And so she reads this piece of writing, which is like a poem, and he doesn't get it. And he was like, I, "You know." Because I can't remember yeah. what the exact I can't remember what the exact language was, but it was uh, it, it was a play on like. It was a metaphor for seeing her own reflection. And he's like, I don't get it. Why don't you just say she saw her reflection? And that's when Sam interjects, like, it's, it's a, a metaphor. metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like, the, the actual words themselves are, are, you know, it's more about the poetry and, than, than it is about the literal story that you're telling. Yeah. And you know, two things I want to bring up here is, one, I feel like this was the moment for me, and I've seen this episode a couple of times before, so it's not like this is new, but this is the moment for me when I'm watching the episode this time around that I, you know, it's like, okay, this is where Dylan starts to not seem quite as appealing as he was. Um, and you know, part of it is that he comes off a little bit like a buffoon, you know, and you start to kind of get the idea that a lot of what he's putting on is exactly that he's putting it on, mm-hmm. you know, that this is not, this is not, uh, really, you know, the, 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 the deep brooding, you know, biker gang leader. Sure. This is just some, you know, some guy who's, you know, raising hell for no good reason. Sure. And, and, and we, I think we all know these kind of people. We've had at least this, this kind of person once in our life who are, they are superficially, they are very charming and charismatic and they may even come off as intelligent in their way but as soon as they get challenged intellectually they do kind of what Dylan does in this scene is like they they try to shut it down yeah and and instead of just like being like oh well, that's interesting i don't know about this tell me more about this they they get de- they get very defensive and try to shut the other person down and you kind of like yeah. the, the the mask slips off of their of their charming of their charming self, and you and you see them threatened, and you see them more for who they are. And there are a few scenes in this episode that you, know, you and I talked about this before we got on mic about um, the fact that I think there are a few scenes in this episode that are pretty poorly written. Um, the funny thing is, is that the way that Dylan is written 
is is actually a really good sketch for a 45 minute television show of of this personality type you know it's a, it, it, the way that he is written I, I completely buy his sort of um I mean, you know, when you really distill it down to a stereotype, abusive boyfriend, you know, and, 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 and this scene is really kind of the moment where you start to really see that, where it's like, he talks about how she's such a great writer, but the minute he doesn't understand something, he kind of knocks her and is like, why don't you just say it this way instead? You know, like undercutting the, the, the fact that he's praising her. And now all of a sudden it's just sort of like, well, I don't really get it. So it must not be that good kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting to note here is that we get a sense before this scene even takes place that Sam, that Shane, who Sam has leapt into might kind of have a thing for Becky because we've seen the caricature at this point that he's drawn of her with Mm, the angels wings and everything. And, and so when he, when Sam interjects with the, it's a metaphor thing, like Becky's reaction to him. And even earlier on when she's trying to get Dylan to stop, mad dog from hurting him I'm not saying that Becky reciprocates the feelings but I think that there's kind of a hint you know there's some subtext there of maybe she's aware of the fact that Shane is kind of sweet on her yeah or, or um, maybe uh, maybe if not just uh, sweet like like they are kindred spirits yeah like Shane has a more artistic so because mm. he draws character caricatures she writes and so Shane is probably considerably deeper than Dylan is. Totally. Yeah. 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 Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, you know, shortly after this um, is when uh, Mad Dog ends up seeing the caricature um, that Shane has drawn and he shows it to Dylan. And this is interesting because this is when Dylan, again, you know, even though you've started to kind of see the cracks, he's treading the line because Dylan kind of handles this in a very cool manner. You know, he's not like, he's not really upset by it. He's not, you know, he's kind of unflappable. He's just sort of like, Oh, whatever. He's, he's drawn, you know? Yeah. I think it's also fair by this point, we've seen what Shane looks like in the mirror image and Shane, (laughs) as Sam says, like, like, like he's leaped into a dirt bag. Like Shane is not much of a looker. So there's probably, uh, Dylan is not very threatened. Right. Well, because Al even has the line about how like he, he's no Brando, you know? Exactly. Um, Yeah. Um, uh, but then, yeah, so, so he, he asks uh, Sam to, to draw a caricature of Mad Dog. And that's what I talked about earlier, yeah. where, where Sam kind of takes it in stride, where, you know, you, you obviously get the look from the look on Scott Bakula's face that, that Sam probably is not much of an artist. Right. But he improvises something that, that turns out to, to get some laughs from the gang. Yeah. Because he just he draws a dog face. Yeah. 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 Uh, which Mad Dog does not like, makes a no. starts a fight, and this is when Al reappears. I think this is where we get the one hologram shot of the episode. Yes. And it's actually, you know, it's funny, it's mentioned in Matt's book as well, it's a really, um, it's kind of a cool shot because we get multiple, you know, actors walking through Al or being pulled through Al as they try to break up the fight. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because... You know, we often see inanimate objects pass through Al. It's not often that we get to see people passing through him in this manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a cool little shot. And it's interesting, too, because Al, in so much as the bikers are trying to pull Mad Dog away from Sam so that he doesn't, you know, 
kill Shane. Al, knowing what Sam is capable of, is trying to cool Sam down, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting little, sure. you know, he's like, cool it, cool it. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's I don't know. I kind of dug that. That is kind of, yeah, because, I mean, yeah, Sam could mess him up. Like, you, you, start <laughs> off with a, you start off with a fair fight and Sam not laying on the ground underneath his motorcycle. He's going to take Mad Dog easily, which we'll see yeah. later on in the episode. Um, but then after that gets calmed down, uh, Al cuts right to the chase and just says, you're here to prevent a murder. Um, yeah. And, and, and what I appreciate is that as naive as Sam can be sometimes is that he immediately gets it. Like, he immediately knows that it's yes. going to be back Yeah. Uh, and this is the first time in a few episodes where we have gotten a clear, cut-and-dry mission. Yeah, and that it is a sort of a life-or-death sure. sort of stake. I mean, certainly in Spontini, there's that moment, but that's not why Sam's there. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It's not He's not there to save her. That's just a byproduct of everything else that kind of spins happened. out of the league. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been the, maybe not since uh, uh, One Strobe Over the Line a couple episodes ago, where we get like yeah. a very clear, like Al shows up and he says, in this amount of time... This is going to happen. This is what you were here to prevent. And right. so uh, sometime in the next 24 hours, 24 hours, Becky is going to be murdered. Her body's going to be found a half hour north, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, her body's going to be found a half hour north of here. Uh, and speaking earlier, um, I can't remember how much of this we were talking about this on mic or, or off mic beforehand, but you were talking about how some of the, uh, the dialogue in the scenes between Sam and Becky isn't great because it isn't very subtle. Yeah. My defense of that is is that it is a life or death situation. The clock is ticking. Sam doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of time to be subtle. Short short of grabbing her, throwing her on his bike and driving away. He doesn't, I guess he doesn't have a whole lot of time to like to like work on her for a few days and be like kind of like sure. work into her. Like, you know, Dylan's kind of abusive. Have you thought about something else? Like he needs to like just cut to the chase. I, yeah, I, you know what? I'll, I'll give you that one. I think that my retort, though, would be then that why is Becky like Becky buys into it too quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like Becky immediately just goes to this sort of like. And maybe this is more the actor than the dialogue, but it feels very, it's just a little too, I don't know. There's no nuance to it. There's just no nuance. Are you saying that you think like Becky jumps too quickly on the same side and she does start to see Dylan as abusive? She just, I just feel like she gets not, not defensive in sort of the way that you, you know, that you often see uh, or, or hear people that have been abused defend uh, their abuser, but she's, I don't know. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. There's just sure. something, I, like I said, I just, I just feel like it's absent uh, the, of, of any nuance. And that bothered me. That okay. bothered me a lot. And, I, and again, you. maybe, maybe that's the actor and not the dialogue, but, okay. but, um, cause I do feel like, uh, I just, the, the scenes between the two of them just don't work for me. They just don't. Hmm. The, See, the, me, yeah, I mean, to me, like they weren't, you know, Shakespeare or anything to bring Shakespeare back into it, but they worked <laughs> perfectly fine for me. Actually, at this scene with with uh, Becky and Sam, um, you know, kind of on on the cliff area, looking out at the water, um, 
to me, like I kind of had the thought of like remembering as I was watching this episode, like, oh, like there's there's not a whole lot of uh, a padding in this episode. Like it jumps right into it of Sam going of learning that she's going to be dead in the next 24 hours to like him jumping out and just like trying to talk some yeah. sense into her in the scene. And then from there, Dylan and the rest of the game pull up on the bikes and Becky starts to walk away. And Sam's immediately like, don't go. Don't go with him. Stay with me. Like Sam is throwing subtlety out the window. <laughs> Whereas yeah, I feel, yes. yeah. Where I feel like some other episodes, uh, like Sam might let it go for now, get on the bike, right away, kind of bide his time, like try to figure out what his next move is. But in this case, he says no. Like right now, don't go with him. He's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and so then we get this exchange where uh, Dylan's like, oh. I can't remember how the exact dialogue is. Like, you're trying to take my girl. And this is where we get a moment where, where Sam, uh, you know, cracks a joke like, you know, you know, you're right, Marshall Dillon. She's my girl now. Uh, yeah, I will admit, yeah. as, far, as, far, as far as 1950s motorcycle movies, I have a total blind spot for that. I am not familiar. Uh, I know Gunsmoke for days. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what that's, sure. what that's what that's in reference to. Um, so, yeah, so... The, the Marshall Dillon joke, like he's making a reference to the TV Western Gunsmoke, uh, which by this point had already been on the air for three, for three years. years. Yeah, yeah, so this was not. So at first I wondered if this was kind of like a uh, anachronistic thing where Sam was making reference to something that didn't exist yet, but no. Uh, Gunsmoke had been on the air for three years, and it would be on the air, speaking of how long episodes run. Uh, yeah. It would be on the air for 635 episodes. The show ran for 20 years, and I think yeah. they wanted it to go. They wanted it to go longer, but then James Arness, who played Marshall Dillon, he just hit a point. He's like, "I'm done." Right, right. I I, th- I don't know if he retired from acting totally after that, but he had been playing the same role for 20 years. You want to know something that's really interesting about that? Is initially they wanted John Wayne. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But he which at, at that point most of what John Wayne had done had done were westerns yeah not wanting to be stereotyped he 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 took a hard pass but i don't know if he knew this one uh he did actually introduce the first episode of gunsmoke aha to television audiences interesting Uh, because by that point he had enough uh street cred he had enough bona fides as a sure basically like people looked at him as a cowboy right and so the I think it was CBS. CBS kind of trusted him to like, okay, well, if we can't have you star in the show, basically introduce the first episode and vouch for it. Yeah. Uh, And it worked. The show ran for 20 years. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because James Arness would actually return to the role uh, in a uh, TV movie. Of the gambler. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a in, in that in that particular TV movie, they they basically got together a bunch of old Western TV stars sure. to reprise their roles for you know for that that particular scene. Um, you know, one thing I will say is that this scene, I, I, I guess, this scene works better um, than the later scene that takes place in Daryl's bedroom. Um, there, there is some nice stuff here, especially about like their dads, 
um, you know, where uh, she talks about how her dad's dead and, um, you know, Sam mentions that his, you know, his dad is dead. Uh, uh, and so there is a nice connection there. Um, this is also the moment where, um, Becky not only, uh, name checks Kerouac, but, but also ends up, you know, kind of paraphrasing, uh, if you will, um, the, um, uh, the mad ones thing, which is a, uh, famous passage from the book. Um, you know, about how, you know, I only had love for the mad ones, the, the ones who were mad to live, mad to die. And, uh, you know, it's a very famous passage. Um, and, and, and so it's just, it's, it's interesting the, the way that he is, is woven through this. And we're going to get to it a little bit more later because I have very strong feelings about the way that he's portrayed within the episode. But, um, you know, uh, growing up when I watched this episode, this was the first time that I think I'd ever heard of him, which makes sense. I was like nine years old. Um, but within three or four years, you know, I started reading him, um, you know, which might sound crazy. Uh, but you know, I can remember being, I think 13 or 14 and, you know, and bringing in like, and picking him as like my author to do, you know, in my English class or whatever. And, and, and so it, I don't know, there's there, there, this definitely was a window for me in a lot of ways. And when I was young, I was very drawn to the episode because of, of what it touched upon with that restlessness. And it kind of, you know, woke me up inside in, in, in a little way. For sure. Well, no, we were talking about this as Betsy and I were watching it earlier. And she actually, she read the book, maybe not as young, but she read the book somewhere in her teenage years. Uh, and I, can't remember, I, I jotted the line down how she said it. Uh, but basically she said, like, every, every young woman has a little bit of Becky in her. Sure, totally. I get that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, at some point when, when she was a teenager, Betsy read the book, and she really connected with it as well. Uh, it is available still on Amazon in various different forms. Uh, Kindle for fourteen ninety nine, because uh, that's how I read almost all of my books these days. But uh, you can even uh, you can even buy uh, the the scroll uh, uh, version if you. Well, I don't know if they sell it anymore or not. They used to at one point in time. I think for the book's fiftieth anniversary, they actually reproduced the scroll because he um, what one of Kerouac's um, uh, things that he used to do whenever he was writing narrative fiction, uh, he he typed on um, one long piece of, of, of paper. Uh, he would get teletype scrolls and put them and feed them into his, uh, his typewriter um, because he didn't want to ever have to take a break to put in new paper. Um, for instance, he wrote On the Road in three weeks. Um, he wrote it in 1951, by the way. It wasn't published until 1957. Um, but the line that she kind of quotes here, actually, I've got it pulled up in front of me now, is... Uh, um, I shambled after as usual as I've been doing all my life after people who interest me because the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars, and in the middle you see the blue center light pop and everybody goes, aww. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a it is it is a fairly famous passage, but um, yeah, I, I mean the book, I've read it a few times now, um, and uh, I think in this day and age, um, he gets a little bit of a bad rap, unfortunately, um, 
but I, I think that's because people miss the point. Sure. Um, you know, he was a very tender fellow and he believed in, in tenderness and that was something that was important to him. Um, and I, I think because, you know, he tends to write fiction about men, you know, and his book is books are populated and dominated by male characters and, and male characters in search of something that in this day and age, you know, people don't necessarily appreciate it in the same way. Um, which is which is too bad. You know, at the same time, he was a drunk, so, you know, what do I know? So, well, <laughs> I mean, pretty much all the writers of the time. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, uh, Vonnegut, uh, Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. Stephen King, to go back to him, like, earlier in his career, like, drunk, drugs, blah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, 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 but anyway, uh, there's a confrontation that takes place here as Sam is, is talking to Becky because the, the rest of the bikers come out. Um, one thing that we did miss, it's worth noting real quick is that, uh, before this, right before this scene takes place, Mad Dog and Dylan have a quick exchange about Daryl's bike and about a Mad Dog basically saying it's a cherry bike and, uh, you know, that the old man wouldn't miss it basically, you know, kind of hatching the plot to steal this bike. Sure. And, and Mad Dog throwing out the idea, it's like, because Ernie had made up the, the thing, like, it had, it's in storage, like, somewhere far away. And Mad Dog is like, no, it has to be around here. Yeah. Somewhere. So, yeah, that's important to know. Yes. Uh, but for now, um, Becky rides off with Dylan, and more or less, Shane's out of the group. He's out of the gang. Uh, kinda, yes. He kind of burned his bridge there. Um, and, then, um, and then we cut to a scene of, of Becky and Dylan arguing about the bike because uh, off camera Dylan has has told Becky about their plans to to find the bike and to steal it and and Becky is very much against that yeah yeah well um, you know Sam so Sam and Ernie you know go in and take a look at the bike because Sam that's right, one of the that's, things right. That Sam that, that, that's the scene that we're missing yeah one of the things that Sam has to do is he has to fix the fuel line on his bike and Ernie's like I've got an extra fuel line laying around here somewhere I'm sure and they go in and discover that the, 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 the bike is actually on the premises yeah. right and then yeah and then we cut to the scene with with Becky and the, and the bikers and uh, yeah you know Becky is is it's interesting because while we don't necessarily see a direct influence as far as her wanting to get away from Dylan there certainly seems to be a little bit more of um, she's standing up for herself and she's doing it in such a way that I think she's maybe trying to explore whether or not there's any like goodness in Dylan, if you will. Sure. It's like if I can convince him the same way that I convinced him to get Mad Dog to lay off Shane not to steal that bike, then then he's okay and I can stay with him sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she believes so much that Dylan represents this you know, this figure, this sort of iconoclastic figure that, that she's convinced herself exists in these books that, that Kerouac is writing, which that's the other thing. I think, you know, I, I'm sure these writers had read some Kerouac, but I just don't feel like they had a strong understanding of him, the way that sure. they're portraying him mm-hmm. um, and the way that, you know, that these characters seem to be, you know, maybe in their mind drawn from him. Um but maybe not. Maybe maybe the exact opposite is true. Maybe they realize that these characters are not drawn from Kerouac. They just think they are. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Because, because they're not, they're not, these are not, you know, the characters that sure. he was writing about, you know, the people that he was writing about at all. Yeah. Uh, it is important to note in the scene between Sam and Ernie, we get some nice dialogue where uh, Ernie talks about his son, Daryl, and how he thinks he's, he's going to come back. And uh, I, I can't remember how exactly the dialogue goes, but basically, you know, Sam you know, says that he lost someone, but he got him yeah. back. So without directly <laughs> referencing it, he he mentions his his brother Tom. He mentions Tom. Yeah, it's a beautiful exchange actually, and I remembered it because Ernie says, uh, and and it's great, and 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 man, Teddy Wilson is awesome the way that he delivers it because he says something to the effect of, "I don't wish harm on anybody, but I don't understand how my boy can still be over mm-hmm. there and guys like him get to come back." Yeah. And it's really really nice. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I guess, and maybe it is the acting. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Um, but but there are parts of this episode that just work so incredibly well for me, and then. There are other parts where I'm just kind of like, uh. sure. Uh, they, I feel like with with the with the Becky story angle, they try, they try to shoe in a big story that they do not handle delicately or well at all, uh, which will take us to the scene that we're about to go to. But I, I do think it's at the end of this scene where Al shows up. Yes, and, he does. And, you're right, and, and Al is the one who confirms that uh, yes, in in a couple of years. Uh, Daryl's remains are going to be returned to the U.S., and Ernie is going to die from basically being heartbroken a few months after that. Uh, and Sam, you know, throws out, like, you know, should I tell him? And I was like, like no, like, this is the only thing that, 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 is, that is keeping him alive right now. Don't take that away from him. And I, I do think, like, this is when we cut to the scene with Dylan and Becky. Yes, we do. And this is one of the scenes that bothers me a little bit because it's like, and, and and maybe this is a little bit Dietrich Bader, and I mentioned this, I think, before we got started, is that it makes sense to me that he played the type of roles that he would play after this episode, because I don't buy some of the stuff that he does in this episode, and this is one of those moments when he's all like, hey, I was over there, I saw guys blown around, apart all around me, you know, all this sort of stuff. It just doesn't come off well. It was very, you know, to me, uh, totally inappropriate, but I thought of John Goodman. In in the Big Lebowski, yeah. <laughs> Any time Walter names che- name checks the Vietnam War in the Big Lebowski, I do not watch my buddies die. Face face down in the mud. Yeah, um, there, yeah. Um, like I said, yeah. I don't know if that's the the writer's fault or Diedrich Bader's fault, but those right. those lines do seem very heavy handed. I feel like it's one of those things like economy of storytelling like they didn't have time to be subtle i know and the funny thing is is that there are there are a couple of scenes within this episode like the like the the showing the caricature the first time that tells a story and it tells a story in a wonderfully economical way like you know because your brain all of a sudden is like why would he draw a picture of her this is why he would draw and all of a sudden you draw these connections between the characters there's a scene coming up very shortly that is probably my favorite moment in the whole episode that has very little to do with the main storyline but it tells a beautiful story and so it makes to me it, it just highlights the fact that there are some of these scenes that to me don't work yeah they feel they feel rushed they feel very much I am a character saying the lines that I need to say in order to get this point across. I'm, I'm getting from point A to point B right now, as opposed to existing. Sure. You know, but it, we do get some savage lines here at one point where, like, you know, Becky's like, you're drunk, and he's like, you know, write about it, I'll read it in the morning. Yeah. You know, well, it's he's basically point, yeah. on the verge of, like, 
you know, raping her. Well, the thing, it's like, uh, I mean, let's say, yeah, he is about to rape her. And this is one of the things I noted, like, when I was younger watching this episode, I didn't catch that. Mm, because he's coming, he's coming on in, uh, in this cartoonish uh, Pepe Le Pew mm-hmm. kind of way, if you get that reference. Uh, <laughs> it's not... I think they probably did this for the sake of television, but it is toned, like the violence of it is toned down. But like when you just when you just listen to the language of it, he is about to rape her. And uh, yes. as, as we we're watching the episode, like Betsy noted, like you know, it, it, if you're only like half watching the episode, it might be easy to miss because like he like he's doing like these big cartoonish things, like he's. You know, like he's trying to kiss her neck and like work down her neck, but he's not like he's not grabbing her breasts. He's not grabbing her genitals. Like he's not, you know, forgive the crude language. He's not whipping it out, right? Himself. Whereas, yes. uh, I, I think if you were to play the scene more realistically, that's what would be happening right now, because clearly from the dialogue. Uh, yeah, like he's he, he's, gets, he's trying to force himself on her, and like at first he he's he's trying to get her to do it to do it willingly, and then when she's not, it, it is very clear. Well, if if you're not if you're not going to do it willingly, I am going to take it. Right. It gets very. Th- Here's the thing, because I agree with you. At first, it starts off in a manner that feels very. Uh, you, you know, Pepe Le Pew is not far off the mark, honestly. Where it's like you know, grabbing her arm and like kissing up her arm. You know, only in this case, he's kissing down her neck, like you're saying. And and and, but she's not having it. You know, she is trying to resist, and then eventually she just goes limp in his arms, and almost like defiantly is like, "Go ahead, take it." You know, and he starts to back off. And this is where the turning point comes because Mad Dog all of a sudden is like, oh, what's the matter? You know, did your old, your old lady turn you to mush? Like, what, you know, you, you, you ain't got any balls anymore, basically. And that's when it starts to get dark because I think there's a commercial break here. And when we come back from commercial break, he's got her pinned down onto the ground, is on top of her. And, and this is the thing that makes it so disturbing. The bikers are standing all around, like, cheering him on. Sure. And it's, this, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, uh, for, forgive me, listeners, in, in case um, in case you have been sexually assaulted before, I am going to kind of go to, to a little bit of a, of a dark place here. So if that does, um, uh, if stories like this do affect you, maybe you want to skip ahead a couple of minutes. But watching this episode, uh, I, I'd forgotten about it, but yes, when Becky goes limp, the reason why that did have such a powerful effect on me when I was watching it this afternoon is that um, I, I do have a friend from from college that she was in a situation where the last several months where her and her boyfriend were together, she did not want to be in the relationship, but he co- he coerced her to co forced her to be in the relationship in a number of ways, including like threatening to like harm himself or to kill himself. She felt mm-hmm. like she had to stay in the relationship, and so um, those last several months, whenever he initiated sex she would basically go to sleep. Mm. She would basically go limp just to mentally get through it. And that's how she survived uh, being in a relationship for the last few months. So yeah, watching it this time and just watching her do that and just like go limp and just basically say, take it. It, it, uh, it reminded me of a 
uh, my friend, and it, it did it did have an effect on me. And to, you know, to do some of our contextualizing that we try to do um, in today, you know, today's day and age, it, it made me think of Agia Argento. I don't know if you've read her article that she wrote, but she basically, I mean, she basically did the same thing with Harvey Weinstein. Like she she writes about how you That's know right. the. Yeah. The first time that that anything happened between the two of them, she basically just went limp, if you will, was like, I, I, fine, this is going to happen. And I, you know, I'm not in a position to to fight back and I'm afraid and I, you know, so just do what you're going to do and I'm just going to lay here sort of thing, you know. Um, and and so it is a very it's it's very easy to have a pretty visceral reaction to this scene now. Um, whereas I think, you know, 28 years ago, it, it, it doesn't change the magnitude of it, but I think, you know, it, it's, it's disturbing in a different way in a different level when you're watching it 28 years ago, it, mm-hmm. it, it feels like that's wrong and that shouldn't happen. And, you know, he should not be doing that to her. Whereas today it feels like it's much more, um, you know, visceral. Like I said, it it, it just, it it hits you, it hits you a little deeper. Yeah. I feel like because, uh, it's because now we have a a much broader and realistic understanding of what rape and sexual assault is. Mm. Whereas 28 years ago, if you just laid there and let it happen, that wasn't necessarily rape. I mean, right. I mean, it was, but we didn't view it that way. Whereas now, we, you know, because of the the, the Me Too movement and the Times Up movement that we are in, people do say now, like, 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 no, like. It's it really that comes is, down to the concept of consent and how we absolutely. talk about consent. Yeah. You know, because the the way that we've talked about consent through the years has definitely changed. Mm-hmm. Consent itself has not changed, as we've even stated before on this podcast. But the way that we talk about it, the conversation has changed, um, and that awareness has changed. And it's interesting to think about how things would have been sixty years ago when this episode was taking place. Um, it was it was it was expected. Do you know, like it, it, it was expected of the woman that it, it, it didn't matter if she didn't want to have sex. She was expected to lay there and take it, especially within the confines of a marriage, which I mean, these two characters are not married, obviously, but especially within the confines of a marriage. It's just sort of like, you know, I, I had a friend of mine one time who literally told me that her mother and she's older than I was uh, am now. But her mother had basically said it. You know, there are times there are going to be times in your marriage when you just have to you just have to do your duty sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a very old school sort of mentality. Um, and, and in this case, you know, there's there's something about like um, these characters, uh, even in that time, um I'm reminded of Jailhouse Rock plays in in, during this uh, episode at one point. And in that film, there is a moment which, again, that film helped to sort of typify a lot of this particular kind of characterization of of men at that time. Elvis has a moment in the film where he kisses the female lead, Judy, Judy Tyler. And uh, and she slaps him in the face and she's like, how dare you think that such cheap tactics would work on me? And his response is, that ain't tactics, honey. That's just the beast in me. And it's, and it's kind of a wonderful summation 
of the excuse for this type of behavior Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how that excuse in that particular time period was not only accepted, but it was romanticized. Absolutely. Because when you have someone like Elvis Presley saying that to a 1957, 58 audience, I can't remember exactly when that movie came out. Sure. Yeah. It normalizes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, it didn't take Elvis Presley to normalize that kind of behavior in the time, but it just kind of no. it, it reinforced that. Right, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and also, I mean, just like, uh, you know, in, in biker culture, gang culture, which I don't know a lot about, but other outside of like Sons of Anarchy, but like, you right. know, uh, we, we kind of skipped over it earlier where, uh, you know, Becky is referred to as Dylan's old lady. Yeah, and so I just kind of like wondered out loud to Betsy. It's like, what is like the etymology of like like not because I had like written in my notes like, oh, Becky is Dylan's girlfriend, and then like the old days like, no, Becky's not Dylan's girlfriend. Becky is Dylan's old lady. Yeah, and I made that observation to Betsy, and she's like, yeah, and like talking in sense of anarchy terms, like old lady is your girlfriend or your wife. Your sweet ass <laughs> is the woman that you have on the side. Right, right, and uh, and I remember like this was. They didn't really like really like dive into it of sense of anarchy. It was just like kind of in the background. But even then, it was just you know like on that show, it was kind of expected. Like if a man wanted to have sex with his old lady, or if a man yeah. wanted to have sex with uh, his sweet ass, who might be a number of the biker's sweet ass, um, that that it, that it was just expected. Like I said, to just kind of give it, you didn't have much of a choice. That was kind of like the cost of being included in the gang. Right. Right. Well, and you know, it's interesting because it does make you wonder, and this is, I mean, like I need to even qualify it, taking kind of a deep dive on, on her character and her feelings is, is this clearly she is attracted and invested in Dylan, but is she more interested in the adventure that he can take her on, you know, and, and right. And wanting to get the stories to write or is she genuinely in love with this guy? You know, and I think it's the former, not the latter. But it's like, what is she willing to give up of herself in order to get what she hopes to get out of this lifestyle? Sure. You know, because um, she believes she believes intensely that she has to live like this in order to write like Kerouac or, you know, she has, and, to, she has to literally be on the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I'm just uh, saying, man, if we did a drinking game, we wouldn't oh be standing God. by the time the oh episode's God, yeah. over. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, we go to commercial, we come back, and like like you said, like there is a scary scene where like Dylan is, is starting to sexually assault her, and everybody standing around is, is, is cheering it on. Uh, and this is when Sam rides up, Becky runs up, jumps on the bike, Sam speeds off. Uh, they start to chase after him, but then they have a, an accident where someone falls off the back of the bike, and like two of the bikes run into each other. Um, and, and this is like at the end of this scene, the mask totally slips, and as uh, as he's putting on his sunglasses in an almost like David Caruso CSI Miami <laughs> way, uh, yes, you know he you know he says you know in a very cold, chilling manner, he says they're dead, they're both dead, yeah. It's it, yeah, it's fascinating because he he goes he goes from from almost comedic with his whole like bunch of geniuses I got here. Oh yeah, to they're dead, they're both dead, and it is it's 
it's a very sort of manic little little bit uh, of scenery chewing, if you will. Um, but yeah, it's almost like when he puts on those sunglasses, he's completed the transformation, you know, to the heavy of this episode. He went yeah. from being, you know, kind of likable at the beginning to showing, you know, the cracks starting to show through, maybe a little unstable, um, to to then being a villain in trying to rape her, to now being a, you know, murdering psychopath. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so they get back up to the diner. Ernie comes busting out with a shotgun. With a gun. <laughs> with a shotgun. Yeah, get out of here. And, and Ernie tells them that, uh, that that Shane and Becky came back. They stole the bike and they took off, uh, I believe it was south, I believe. Um, yes. Yeah, They were that they were going south. And so Dylan puts his nice guy mask back on and he says, no, 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 like we, like, you know, he's, he's turned on us. We want him just as bad as you. Don't worry. We're going to get him. We're going to get your son's bike back. They take off south, and then shortly thereafter, Sam and, and, and Becky step out of the, of the shadows inside the diner. Turns out it was, you know, it was all a put on, which I think, like, us as the viewer, like, I think we were supposed to know that, too, at this point. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, so they step out, and, and Ernie's like, well, you know, they're, they're going south. I suppose you're going to go north. Um, and this is where we transition to, like, them staying the night and getting some rest. And this is the scene, I believe, that you are talking about earlier, like, a, a beautiful economy of storytelling with hardly any dialogue at all. Yeah, Sam's in Daryl's room, and he finds... And it's, and it's not just the the picture that's painted it's the way it's painted you know the camera starts off low and you see like a couple of christmas presents in the closet and the camera pans up and you see more presents and more presents and more presents until you realize that they go all the way up to the very top of the closet mm-hmm. and it's just this huge stack of christmas presents and sam reaches in and grabs one and there's a card on there mm-hmm. and he you know he opens the card and it's interesting because in a way it 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 could absolutely be seen as an invasion of privacy, but Sam does it in a very gentle manner. And, and it it just conveyed a a great sense of sadness and loss, you know, and that desire, that, that passion to, to see the person back, you know, and, and and to carry on as though they're coming back, no matter what, that's the most important thing. And then Becky comes in and she reads the card and you see that this card was from 1955 you know, he's been doing this for three years. Uh, or he's been doing it for longer than that. This just happens to be one of the presents. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful piece of storytelling. Uh, and it tells you so much about the relationship here between father and son. And you just can't help but feel an incredible amount of empathy for Ernie. Um, sure. and it's one of the, you know, it's one of the saddest parts of the episode because there's no, there's no real resolution. And, and yet in a beautiful, simple way, by the end of the episode, there's enough to make you feel this sort of bittersweet, you know, feeling for Ernie that, that, that he's never going to get his son back and he doesn't have much longer to live. Mm-hmm. But there's gonna be there's gonna be some companionship for him. There's gonna be something worth putting a smile on his face. Sure, um, and it's just a beautiful bit of storytelling. And then it's and it's and it's pushed right up against. Just kind of, I just feel like it is. I feel like it's just a sort of stilted, you know, stereotypical dialogue. This just sort of like, you know. Uh, 
I, I actually have a transcript in front of me, so I want to read from it real quick. Sure. Let's go. I can't. What? You go. Becky, if Dylan comes back, he'll hurt you. He'll hurt you. He was just drunk. I mean, he'll sober up. He'll be okay tomorrow. Sooner or later, he's going to hurt you. It's just a matter of time. I told you, I'm not going. Well, if you ain't going, I guess you're staying. I got the spare room of my garage. It's yours for the night. Maybe if you get some sleep. You know, this is this is actually before the before that scene. Sure. Um, yeah. But then, but then, but then Sam says, you can't go back out with Dylan, you know, and then she's like, I have to Becky, come on. He was going to rape you. No, it was my fault. I embarrassed him in front of all his friends. Shane, Dylan needs me. Yeah, he needs you. All right. He needs to own you. No, he doesn't. And it's just so like in your face and it's, it just doesn't work for me. And I get what you're saying. And I, it's so much so that I want to watch the episode again, keeping in mind what you were saying earlier about Sam having to, you know, not having the time to mess around and have to just be like, all right, here's how you, you know, here's what I got to say. But it just lacks a lot of nuance and subtlety for me. And I didn't like it. And it didn't feel, it didn't feel like a real conversation. It felt like an after school special. Sure. I got it. And also something to keep in mind, like I, this occurred to me in the later scene is that, um, even though they don't, they don't directly name check it. I, I think there may be a lot of shades of, uh, Sam sees Becky as Katie. And her, That's, you and know, her, he does. Her it, first, it's funny. Her first marriage. He does have that line because he does actually say, uh, you know, uh, Dylan's abusing you. If you're not careful, the next guy is going to be some jerk who drinks too much and beats you. And then what are you going to do? Which is exactly what happens to Katie. So that's I mean, a thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good so, point. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, really, it's like I, I feel like you, you hate to think it, but I, I do think like women like Becky do say things like that in those situations. The, yes, uh, you're right. They yeah. no, you're right. They yeah. do. And, and they like do. I said, like the, like Sam doesn't. Uh, like he he doesn't have the luxury of time, and so that's where, uh, yeah. So to me, like this scene did not did not bug me. Yeah, as much. That's fair. Yeah. I, no, I mean that's fair. I just I, for whatever reason, it just as I was watching it this last time, it got a little under my skin. But sure. And but then the next of, scene. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say this next scene is interesting to me because it's again it. It just feels to me, and we we know we had uh, two guys who developed the story and two guys who ended up writing the screenplay, one of whom is the same in both teams, and then two of whom are are different on each team. And it just feels to me that there are signs of that, that the episode feels a little patchwork. Like there are there. there, I said this to you before we got on the mic. It feels like somebody had an idea and then they wrote the idea instead of having a story to tell. And this scene is, is indicative of that too. And it's very much sort of like, this is what on the road means. And it's very reductive. And luckily you have Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell who are great actors that, that pull the scene off. Well, um, you know, Al has that line about the fifties were conformist, materialistic, repressive, boring, and stupid. Yes. And it's a great line. And Scott's reaction to it is wonderful. And so it works, but again, it does feel very reductive. And it's one of those things where I feel like if the show were hitting the people that it was initially written to, to target where Don Belisario says it was made for like baby boomers. Sure. I feel like there are a lot of baby boomers that would see this scene and kind of laugh and be like, yeah, you know, I, I I get, I get where they're coming from, but I feel like that there are other people that maybe watching this episode, especially in 2018 would just sort of maybe roll their eyes a little bit if they're not charmed 
by Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, which if they aren't, then I, I don't know what's wrong with They're them. We're, we're, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So speaking of, right. scenes that, speaking of scenes that bug me is that we get to the next scene. It just turns out, coincidentally, Jack Kerouac is just up the road. The which road. is true, actually. Yeah. Which is okay. true. He okay. was actually, yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing accurate. about Kerouac... Yeah, so the interesting thing about Kerouac at this particular point in his life, um, and I, I don't claim to be any expert, but I do know a little bit, is that he, again, he, he wrote On the Road in 51, but it wasn't published until 57. When it was published, he became a celebrity. It was not anything that he wanted at all. He didn't really like it. He rebelled against it a little bit. And at one point, a couple of months before this episode would have taken place, it would have been, yeah, it would have been July of 58, he was outside of... Um, a cafe in New York and he was beaten pretty severely by three guys that he got into a bit of an argument with. And so he left New York and he, and he went out to California. Um, and you know, he just spent his time drinking and smoking and writing. Um, and at that particular point in his life, he was writing a lot of letters. He wasn't writing a lot of like prose or poetry. Um, so he was sending letters to a lot of his friends, like, you know, William Burroughs and, and Allen Ginsberg. Uh, and, um, I think at one point Neil Cassidy, uh, you know, came to visit him while he was out there, and the two of them had some adventures that he would later write about. Um, so, as far as him being there and him being kind of maybe in the in that state of mind that, that he seemed to be in within the context of of the episode, that that does seem to be fairly accurate. Got it. Okay. So I will say what, what what bugged me about like the scene itself, like once Sam gets there, one uh, kudos to the writers for not taking Al to Jack Kerouac's cabin. Yeah, because I totally could have seen them having done that, and then Al geeking out the entire time, and then it distracting from the scene. Yeah, maybe. Well, he's, he does say he does tell Sam that he did meet Kerouac. That's that, right. that, that Kerouac was, was at a um, reading. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Kerouac was at a reading, uh, or, or that Kerouac was giving a reading not too far from Annapolis, and he and a couple of plebes went down to see it, um, which is fascinating to me because you don't think of plebes at Annapolis as being his target audience. Probably, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not, that's not but hey, Al, Al was a little bit of a different kind of sure. character, so you know. Uh, but anyway, so I, I like while I. Uh, I don't know near as much about Jack Kerouac as, as you, or I, I haven't read On the Road like you have. Watching this scene this afternoon, uh, I, I think the actor, he does the best job that, that he can with the scene. I'm talking about uh, the actor who plays Kerouac. Yeah. I, I feel like someone read the cliff notes of On the Road, and let's just jam these words into Jack Kerouac's mouth. Thank you for saying that, because I completely agree. First of all, the actor is Michael Brian French. Mm-hmm. He's another guy who has worked a lot. Recently, he played uh, Jack Pearson in Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's done a lot of stuff, uh, kind of continuing that vein that we were talking about earlier, about how a lot of the actors within this episode have done a lot, or had a lot of success. Um, the thing that bugged me, and I didn't know any better the past few times that I watched this episode, uh, but now I, I guess I do because as I was watching, the thing that bugged me is it felt like an actor who was trying to be Jack Kerouac, which is not necessarily a knock, 
but it didn't feel like Jack Kerouac. Um, there's actually, he didn't do a lot of television appearances. He didn't do a lot of like video interviews or film interviews, that sort of thing. But there are a couple that he did and one that he did around this time on the Steve Allen show. And the thing about Kerouac was he wasn't, he wasn't this manic, intense guy the way that he's portrayed in this episode. He was actually kind of cool and laid back. He just wrote in an intense and manic way. Which which I feel like that's, yes, that's, that's how, mostly how writers are. Like, yeah. like, like they do write in this very intense way, but then like they, they are very, um, uh, if not laid back, they are kind of quiet and awkward. And that's what I wanted to see in this scene is like I wanted to see like a total like subversion of expectation and just be like, yeah, just like being very laid back or, or very awkward. And yeah, a, a lot of times like when, when people write that way, they write that way because uh, in part because they don't actually express themselves that way. Yeah. Extemporaneously in real life. Exactly. Exactly. And it just it felt to me like this was someone who was just trying so hard, you know, just really like, just kind of like, ah, you know, trying to squeeze all of the, the passion and blood out of this stone and, and it didn't work. And, and, and again, you know, I mean, yeah, he really was, he was, he was, he was a little bit more laid back and a little bit more cool. And he was, and he was, uh, and he was a little bit more tender than he came across within this. You know, he, he, he really was. I know that's hard to imagine, but he, you know, as he got older, and especially this particular point in his life was definitely a big turning point for him. As he got older, he definitely um, started to get a little bit more disillusioned with it all. And so he became a little bit more flip, a little bit more sarcastic at times. But he was also a very intelligent man. Um, I mean, he could quote, and he could quote Shakespeare. He could quote, you know, I mean, he could quote the Bible. He could quote, you know, he, 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 he always saw himself as being a good Catholic boy, you know, which is, mm-hmm. I, I might sound crazy to people that aren't familiar with him, but it, it, it's true. He, he very much saw himself, um, in a way that I don't think he was seen or accepted by a lot of people. Uh, and you know, yeah, he did some crazy things and he, he experienced and and lived a very full life. But I think that for him going on some of these crazy adventures that would inspire books like on the road and and visions of Cody, those were finite to him. It was not, it was not, I'm going to go and do this all the time. It was, I'm going to go take a bite out of life and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to synthesize it and I'm going to put it into something else. Sure. And a great example of that is the fact that, you know, most of these stories that he was telling were autobiographical, but he, he was changing the names, mm-hmm. you know, he was changing and tweaking things a little bit here and there, you know, he was still a storyteller and he was, and he was very, you know, he's interested in the way that he would use the words and he, you know, and he was very influenced by jazz. Um, you know, he, he does this beautiful eulogy for Charlie Parker at one point, which is, there's an audio recording of, uh, and even in the way that he talked about Charlie Parker, it wasn't a biography or a eulogy so much as it was spoken jazz. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of who, you know, that's, that's how he saw himself. So it was, it was strange to see him portrayed this way, now. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was younger, I think I found it very attractive. Sure. Because of what he was saying. 
yeah. you know, even more than how he was saying sure. it. And I guess if that's the important thing, it's not necessarily, you know, if you try to imagine the way Jack Kerouac would have said these things, you're missing the point because what he was saying was more important than how he would say it. Got it. I got it. Yeah. And also, yeah, economy of storytelling. Like, yeah, they just needed of someone yeah, really passionate. Yeah. And so basically, uh, Sam wants Jack to go, like, talk some sense into her. And he's like, I can't. I can't speak out against the road. Uh, and so Sam more or less walks away empty handed. Uh, it is interesting, though, like uh, Matt points out in this book, in the original script, uh, Sam was going to come across angrier in this scene. Uh, he was going to, mm. like, try to force Kerouac to, to make a stand. And basically, like you know, you know, really like say something to Becky, but then they tone that back. Uh, but anyway, so Sam shows back up as he's pulling back up. I think this may be the second time in the episode we're hearing the Great Pretender. Yeah, it is. Okay, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, it plays earlier in the episode too. Yeah. Yeah, after Jailhouse Rock, I think. Uh, and, and so he he goes back in. He's he's in the dark, uh, and this is where we we get the the creepy shot of of Dylan standing in the corner, and he lights a cigarette to announce his presence. And this is where the mask has totally slipped. And this yeah. is where I, I wrote down, and this is where I, I said earlier, like, Dylan is, uh, like, he's the worst kind of scary person because he is so charismatic, he is so mm-hmm. charming, but then when that switch flips and you actually see them for who they really are, there there is just this edge of violence in every single, in every single word that he says. Yeah. Yeah, no, without a doubt, he gets very um, menacing, um, and 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 yeah, the mask has definitely completely slipped. I, you know, I think that one can draw from the episode. It's not, it's not done in any sort of explicit way, obviously, and I don't necessarily think that it's done in any kind of truly implicit way but if one decides to put the work in you could certainly see this you know this korean war vet who is damaged um and you know and 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 running from something you know rebelling against everything um but by this point in the episode he's you know given way to any kind of empathy and, and and given himself over completely to being the villain you know yeah Absolutely. So, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, just a scary scene. He, he roughs up Ernie a little bit. He roughs up the diner a little bit. He's roughing up Becky, and it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, when they're, that's the other thing, too. There, you know, we didn't mention this because this is not the first time she's been hit. Becky gets hit a few oh times. God, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, 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 and really, we should have mentioned this earlier. I mean, the physical violence that happens to her um, and the way that she accepts it wholly. Like she never really, she never really like fights against it. And I don't mean that physically. I just mean even emotionally or mentally there's, there's such an acceptance of it. Sure. Um, We kind of, we glossed over it, but there's like even a scene earlier where she totally defends him and talks about like how you you don't know the Dylan. I know you don't know the Dylan who wakes up in the middle of the night in cold sweats because he's having flashbacks to being in, you know, in combat, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is just more of that. It's a yeah, it's just a really scary, creepy scene, and then that is interrupted by Mad Dog has found the bike. He has found Black Shadow, yep. and he is uh, running it in circles outside. Yeah, and that that draws everybody's attention. Ernie runs out. 
uh, and everybody's man, laughing. just another yeah. great piece of work from Teddy Wilson here, yeah. though. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I gotta be honest, man. I damn near choked up the way that he is, like, because the bike represents so much more to him, and it's one of those things that you know, going back even to like uh, acting class, um, I can remember uh, the discussion about how. Uh, you, you know, these objects, for instance, that are on stage with you, um, you know, can, yeah, they can just be set dressing or they can mean something to you. Sure. Um, and in, and in this instance, it's like that motorcycle means so much to him and it's such a representation of his, his missing son that to see it defiled in this way sure. is, is so distressing to him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, and he kind of can't help you touched by it. Yeah. I mean, and it's almost like, 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 like having the bike defiled, like it's defiling the memory of Daryl and, it, and it's just like saying he's not coming. Home. Yes. He's dead. Yeah. Ah, right. This is, this is the same moment in Pole Hall Blues where Alberta gets snapped in two. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yes. Without a doubt. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. So this is a hard scene to watch. And then we get into uh, what is supposed to be the climax of the episode and watching it today. And it's just like, you know, the limitations of, of television and time and especially with Quantum Leap, like they were doing like a mini movie every week where they were building right. almost everything from scratch. Uh, the, the two fights that we have in this final sequence are just both kind of lackluster. You know, it's interesting you say that because the one with the one with Mad Dog, I agree. It does kind of just feel like, oh, he just kicked him in the face. Cool. Uh, but the one with Dylan, while it is in no way, you know, this epic climactic fight that it is meant to be, it, there's just enough that that I that I kind of am okay with it. Like the fact that it, you know when Sam gets the dirt thrown in his eyes and Al has to kind of coach him through the fight. Like it become the tension gets raised just enough that that it it doesn't feel quite kind of like one kick and he's done sort of deal, which makes me okay that it doesn't go like you know, 30 or 40 seconds longer or whatever, you know, it's not, it's not the fight in, at the end of, you know, Machico or what, you know what I mean? Uh, as much as I hate that episode, at least that fight scene is pretty, pretty menacing and drawn out. Sure. Uh, this one, you're right. I mean, this one is fairly short and, and sweet, but, but it, there's just enough tension there with I, I, the I dirt guess, thrown in his eyes. Yeah, you know? I guess the thing about it, it's, uh, it's not the fight that you expect in a scene like this, but sure. maybe, but maybe it's a more realistic fight. Yeah. Yeah. And that it, it's short, sweet. Once Sam gets the better of him, it's like throw over the shoulder. One punch, knocks him out. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's it. Speaking of going on a tangent, um, have you seen Patton Oswald's last stand-up special, Annihilation? I have not. Okay. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a very difficult piece because I'm, I'm sure you know, like, uh, it's all leading up to, like, the last half is talking about uh, the sudden death of his wife. And, yeah. Uh, and he talks about it in a funny way, but it's how, like, he and his daughter coped with that. But the first half, like, he's just, like, getting the audience warmed up. And he just tells this hilarious story of, of, of standing outside a bar. I can't remember where it was, but this drunk guy comes out of a bar, and basically he decides he wants to fight a guy. And he picks one guy. He, basically, he, he picks a fight with this huge, who it turns out to be a bodybuilder. This drunk guy picks a fight with a bodybuilder, and the bodybuilder doesn't fight him. He just nonchalantly picks him up off the ground, holds him over his head, and drops him. Oh, God. Drops him on his face, shatters his nose, 
holds onto his cigar the entire time. <laughs> Picks this drunk guy up, drops him face down on the ground, and then without missing a beat, turns back to his buddies and continues his conversation. Yeah. And it's just, it's just nice. you know, it's like, you know, we expect these, like, long, drawn-out fights, but, you know, to, to backtrack what I'm saying, like, yeah, sometimes a fight is just, like, one-two punch, or it's just, like, picking somebody off the ground and dropping them. Yeah. And, and that's the fight. Yeah, totally. No, I, I yeah, I, I, you're, you're right there. I mean, it does, it does end up lending itself to feeling maybe a little bit more realistic. Um, but, you know, then the cops come and kind of clean up the mess, and Sam and Ernie and Becky are in the diner, and talking, and you know, at this point, Becky is Ernie has, has has you know made it known that there's room for her if she wants to stick around. Sure. He's got a place above the garage, and you know he could use a waitress, all this sort of stuff. And and you know she's still adamant that she needs to get back out there and be on the road. Um, you know, Sam is trying to get her to stay. Al is also there at this point as well. And then all of a sudden, as she says that she's got to be on the road. That's when we hear, you know, I got to move, I got to groove, I, you know, and, and, and here comes Jack Kerouac stumbling in. Um, and we get more of, of the same, you know, it's, it doesn't feel, it doesn't necessarily feel, it feels like somebody's idea of Jack Kerouac it was as like, opposed it was to like, Jack Kerouac. It was Kerouac. like a high schooler's book report of Jack Kerouac. Yeah. And here's where we're going to bring back around to, to James... To James Franco real quick, because, you know, Allen Ginsberg <laughs> has already been name checked within the course of this episode. There's a great, great film from about 10 years ago, I think, um, called Howl, which is, you know, the name of, of his famous um, poem that he wrote. Uh, and it stars James Franco as Allen Ginsberg. And uh, John Hamm is in it also, plays his lawyer, um, because there's this trial. Um, he's been put on trial for indecency, basically, because of the, the poem, because within the context of the poem, homosexuality is mentioned a couple times, because Ginsburg himself was gay. Um, and uh, that movie you know, feels very authentic and it feels like a real, you know, a very genuine portrait of this human being. Um, and we've not quite gotten something like that for Kerouac. And as I was watching this, it made me think of that movie and it made me think of like, I would love, I would love for us to get that kind of treatment, you know, of Kerouac. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, he comes in, you know, he gives his speech, um, you know, and basically, I don't mean it literally. Yeah. 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 I don't exactly. mean, like, like to your point earlier, like I don't mean be on the road all of the time. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there's this cute little scene too, where a uh, moment in the scene where he's leaving and, you know, and Ernie's like, what about that cup of coffee? And, you know, and Kerouac's like, not now, but I'll be back. I wrote the exact line down here. Uh, I'll come back later when it's hot. Yeah, <laughs> and, and everybody and, and everybody swoons. Ernie basically swoons. Yeah, er, yes. Ernie, Ernie's panties are wet at the end of the scene. <laughs> and it's you know it's interesting because one of the things one of the things that that happens in this scene and and I've been a little lukewarm on her performance in in parts of this episode is that. Josie Bissett come she just comes alive and it's interesting because she doesn't have a lot of lines in the scene but whenever the camera's on her and she's watching Kerouac sure like 
it is clear the way she feels like, about like, this yeah, man. Her messiah is yeah, is here. And, and it's, it's and it's yeah. clear that this is sort of a, like a life changing moment for her, and obviously for the better. Yeah. You know, and, and in the actor's defense, I think it's kind of glossed over uh, because they only mention it. They only mention it once, and you know, the, the, Becky is only eighteen years old. That's true. That's very and, true. You know, and it's it's the you know the the, the old TV Hollywood trope where where the, the actor is much older than what she actually is. But if if you remember that Becky is actually only eighteen years old, and involved with Dylan, who's probably at least in his late thirties, um, her dialogue. And her over the topness makes more sense. Well, for what it's worth, Josie Bissett is only twenty when they filmed this episode. Okay. And Diedrich Bader was twenty-four. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, which feels about right to me, honestly, though, because you know, Korean War was just fifty-eight, so the war is over for about four or five years at this point. He was probably pretty young when he went. You know, I could see him as I could see him not being quite thirty. All right, it's um, important to remember that the Korean War lasted eleven years, according to Nash. <laughs> I knew where you were going because for a minute I was just like, "Wait a minute!" Uh, according to Nash, the Korean War lasted eleven years. Anyway. That is great. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, there's actually a, a great book about the Korean War by David Halberstrom called The Coldest Winter, and I heartily recommend that to anyone who's remotely interested in the conflict um, because it is it is a it is a wonderful book. It was actually the last book that uh, was published bef- uh, before he died, um, unfortunately. I mean, he's he, he's a brilliant chronicle, um, chronicler of, of, of American history, and, uh, you know, his books on, on the 50s and uh, the Korean War and Vietnam are, are, are must-reads, in my opinion. Um, but I digress. Anyway, uh, at this point, you know, it's, 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 it's just a nice little moment for, for everyone involved. You know, Al even is a little starstruck here. Um, and uh, after he leaves, Al lets Sam know that, you know, she's going to be all right. She's going to stick around. She's going to help Ernie deal with the death of his son, uh, which, again, is sort of that bittersweet thing that I was talking about uh, here with Ernie um, and that she's going to become a novelist. Why this part is important, I don't know. But, uh, oh, well, actually, that's not true. I do know um, because he says that she's got uh, she buys a beautiful house with a great view of the ocean, which seems kind of throwaway. But we're forgetting that earlier in the episode, there is mm-hmm. that moment where she's standing there looking at the ocean. She's never seen the ocean before. That's right. Which is kind of, yeah, which is kind of a stunning little moment for her that, that gets a little underplayed. And, and again, it, it, you know, I, I, I have I don't want anyone to mistake you know, any of the criticisms I have levied at the episode, because I do think that the episode ends up being pretty damn good at the end of the day. And, uh, and there are some really nice moments that, that she has and, 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 and that, you know, she and Sam have in particular, there are just a couple of moments where I, I guess maybe I don't buy it quite as much. Sure. Um, but yeah, then Sam leaps out and we're back to her charm again. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, he leaps out. I don't, I, uh, I think you maybe just noted here, uh, and everything that turns out well, Ernie is still alive and Al's present, uh, which we, we plays into that trope of where quantum leap kind of, uh, oversticks the landing, kind of overdoes it and showing how <laughs> right, all the characters sure. turn out for the best in the end. Like it, it's not just enough that he lived another you know, 20 years and he was happy. He has to still be alive in, in Al's presence. Yeah. Uh, very much like uh, Jesse at the end of Color of Truth. 
Same thing. Right, um, right, right. And uh, so, yeah, the last line before Sam leaps out is welcome home. So we get, you know, the, the, the touching back on the home motif. Oh, shit. We, we, we totally skipped over something that's kind of cool here that I completely forgot about. And I'm sure, sure you'll remember it as soon as I mention it. When Kerouac is given his monologue, at one point he says, on the wheel of life, we all go round. We are many people at many times. And he looks at Sam when he says that. Uh, and it's like I missed that. Okay. Yeah, and, and and you can take it multiple ways. You can read into it that it's another sort of meta, you know, kind of like you know, fictional sort of, sort of you know wink to the audience. You can you can look at it as them deciding to portray Kerouac as this sort of mystical you know Buddha figure, which he has been portrayed as before, you know, by others and, and take it in as that, you know, maybe he knows, you know, what Sam is really there sure. for or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or you could just take it as coincidence, whatever you want. A coincidence, but, uh, yeah. it, it is an interesting little, you know, tip, tip of the hat there, I suppose. Yeah. To so the conceit of the show. To the conceit for sure. And then, yeah, he says, welcome home. And then he leaves. And then we get to her charm. And, um, I've just been looking at back through our messages here. Uh, uh, we mentioned at one point, like back, I think we recorded like her charm. Um, like how we never uh, the, the the leap into her charm like we never got an abridged version before because the the week preceding her charm was a rerun and so in the weird way they edit the end of episodes but one of our listeners Diana Green uh, she messaged us back in uh, May um, letting us know that uh, that yeah that she remembered from her DVDs that there was a uh, truncated version of her charm that Sam leaped into at some point in season three, and this is it. This is the episode. Here it is. Yeah. Um, thank you, Diana. Yeah. Thank. You. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot her a message here when we wrap up here and just say thanks. We found the episode. It's uh, it's it's the yeah. end of, of Rebel Without a Clue here. Yeah. Well, you know, and speaking of the the end of the episode, yeah. uh, Dennis, what are your what are your final thoughts here? Uh, I, I think. This is a perfectly okay episode. This is one that um, I, just just by chance I, I have watched more than, than other episodes, not because I've necessarily like sought it out. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've just happened to see this episode more than once. Um, as I was saying earlier, I do think um, uh, the more sensitive that we are to certain issues now, um, if you are... Uh, if you are someone who is sensitive to uh, to issues of, of, of sexual assault, um, this episode can be kind of triggering in some uh, in some scenes. So just be aware of that. Um, but yeah, I think this is a yeah this is a perfectly this is a perfectly good episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree with that assessment. It is. It's a perfectly good episode. You know, one of the things that's interesting that I just want to point out um, that, that I didn't really think of until these last five minutes or so is it is sort of fascinating that it would be interesting to talk to the writers uh, to see how much of this is intentional, that Becky comes from the home that she does, that she has this alcoholic, abusive father. She's run to this abusive biker mm-hmm. boyfriend and she idolizes this alcoholic writer, and you know it's 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 kind of interesting there. And 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 it you know they don't shy away from portraying Kerouac as as drunk because when Sam goes to see him, he's guzzling wine out of a bottle, a bottle. You know he's he's, he's got the open bottle of wine and he's taking pulls off of it. Um, 
so yeah, you, you know, I think that 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 connection can be can be made, and it is interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but yep, yeah. Um, but but anyway, yeah, I, I, I would just say, yeah, you're right. It's it's a, it's a perfectly fine episode of of the show. I I, I probably. You know, at this particular point in our journey, it would probably end up on the bottom half of, of my list because this I believe this is the 40th episode. So if okay. I had to do 40 episodes, this one would probably fall somewhere in my bottom 20 as opposed to my top 20. But okay. it would probably be it would I, I would say it would certainly not be I don't know if it would be my bottom 10. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And, 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 and if I'm, and you know, it's funny because I, I do this in general. Um, there's this website called letterbox that lets you like log the movies that you've seen and rate them and all this sort of stuff. And I, you know, I really enjoy it. One of the things I find is I rate films sometimes is that I tend to be like, if I like a movie out of five stars, it's probably going to get like, you know, somewhere between three and five. Sure. Like it takes a lot for me to hate something so much that I'm only going to give it like one star. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So even my bottom five episodes of Quantum Leap might only get two stars. So if you're in my bottom ten, you might be looking at some two and a half, maybe even three star episodes there. Okay. But if you're going to be in my top 30, most of those episodes are still going to be solid, good, watchable episodes. Sure. So how does this one stack up against the Americanization of Machiko? This episode is fucking Oscar gold compared to the Americanization <laughs> of Machiko. Okay. <laughs> I Fair just, enough. man, I tell you what, I, I, it's going to be, it is going to be a hard task for one of the next 57 episodes to, 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 to be worse than Machiko. Uh, I don't know. The, the last season turns into a gimmick palooza. Yeah, but even though, okay, maybe the Dr. Ruth episode. Or the Geraldo episode that's not really a Geraldo episode. Those two are pretty bad. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I rewatched I, the See, here's the thing. Episode. Go ahead. I don't mind. I, a lot of people don't like the two that I'm about to mention, but I actually don't mind the Marilyn Monroe or the Elvis episode. Okay. I will probably be very critical of the Elvis episode because growing up I was a huge Elvis fan. Same here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'll probably be a little critical of it, but, but yeah, as an episode of Quantum Leap, I don't, I don't deride them as as much as some fellow fans might. I don't know. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, all of those will be interesting to rivet. Yeah, the uh, I, I don't think I have watched Roberto. That's the Geraldo episode. There it is. Yes, I, thank I, you. I don't think I have watched Roberto probably in over fifteen years, so that'll be. A, oh yeah, same for me. Yeah, that'll be an interesting episode to to go back and revisit. Yeah. Oh man, I'll tell you what. You will be the first, literally the first, to know when I find an episode that I dislike as much as much. You know? <laughs> the search is on. The search yeah. is on. Uh, so yeah, that's this week's episode. Uh, so. Hopefully, by the time we get ready to record next episode, you will be sleep-deprived and beside yourself. Yes. Uh, because, you will, because you will have a little baby here, and, and we, will, we will figure out where to go from there. Man, that is certainly the hope. That is certainly the hope. Uh, I, I, uh, you I, know. Uh, we didn't talk about it before we started recording, but uh, you know, I was going to suggest, like, if, if Jessica came down and announced in the middle of this recording that, that that she had gone into labor. I'm like, you know, we may cut off the episode and come back later, but let's keep it. Let's air it. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, yes. No, we definitely would. We definitely would. Well, at some point within the next week, it'll happen. Who knows? We might we might get another recording in before then, try and bank an episode like we had attempted to. We made a valiant effort for a little bit there. Uh, we did, yeah. And then, and then time and schedule just gets... I mean, it, we talk about... Yeah. Because even when we record one episode, we're, we're solidly coming up on two hours right now. I don't know how much we'll edit down out of it, but recording time, we're up to two hours right now. Edit down out of it? Sure. Who do you think I am? <laughs> right. Uh, oh, but, man. Anyway. You know, in the interest of time, I will just say in closing, and then I'm going to throw it to you to, to get us out of here and leap us out of here. In closing, I will certainly say and reinforce, uh, you know, check out some Kerouac because, the, you know, he, he, he says and does a lot of really great, cool things. And On the Road is a perfectly acceptable place to start. Um, but maybe check out a couple of those interviews. There's a Steve Allen interview with him on YouTube that you can find very easily. And it gives you a great window into who, you know, more who he was, I think, than what this episode does and what he represents. Check out the wild one. It's you know it's a great early fifties flick. Gives you an idea of this you know this sort of time period and gives you an idea of what they were aping. Uh, you know more so obviously the rebel without a cause. Um, and I, I just think that those are worthwhile things you know for a good well rounded human being to have read and seen. Yeah, absolutely. I will say I will say on my on top of those recommendations, if you've never seen Gunsmoke, <laughs> yes, go go catch some uh, go catch some Gunsmoke. On reruns, and if you've never seen the Drew Carey show, another Diedrich Bader uh, vehicle, go watch the first three seasons, and then stop, and then just stop, and then stop. <laughs> then, uh, if you really like it, maybe go to season four, season five. But then nothing good happens after season five. It's just, mm, it's not good. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I wouldn't know. Yeah, so those are my recommendations. Anyway, so next week, or uh, maybe we'll we'll end up taking a couple of weeks off. We'll see how it turns out with, uh, with the arrival of, of Baby Fane. Uh, uh, what's the unofficial name? That the uh, Poplamoose. Oh, uh, Poplamoose. Yeah. Poplamoose. Yeah. Poplamoose. Yeah. Uh, but uh, next episode will be a little miracle. A little miracle. One this is um, what we all need right now. Right, yes, uh, one of one of the two Christmas episodes, and probably the one that everybody remembers as the as the Christmas episode. And you know, one other thing that I will say as we continue to bloat this episode into a gargantuan sized special epic um, is you mentioned something that was very interesting to me that I had, had you know just not been aware of. Uh, in context of where we were, is that we are coming up on a time when the show was put on hiatus and almost canceled. Uh, yeah, between Runaway and eight and a half months. I think it was off the air for two or three months. Uh, yeah. So I, it, go ahead. Well, you know, context being king and all, it's interesting to think of that because we've had, you know, a very good run of episodes. You know, we've had a few misses, in my opinion, um, which this one might be a near miss, but uh, but for the most part, we've had some really, really great episodes. So it's interesting to think that, you know, coming off of the season premiere in particular and the season finale of season two, that they were in such danger because they were they were really kind of They're, creating some of the best episodes of the series. Yeah, you know, it's funny. As, as we were chatting, I was looking through through Matt's book, and, and, and in his book, like at the beginning of every episode, one of the, the, the tidbits that he drops out is like what their original viewership was for the original airing of the episode. And like mm-hmm. all all of the episodes thus far in the season were solidly around like the eight point three and eight point five million range. 
Um, mm. I would love to look up and see, because I'm sure by now, by today's standards, that number is huge. Right. Because like, yes. because everybody's attention is, is divided, and who watches live TV anymore? Everybody DVRs it and comes back and watches it later. I would love to know like what a, a, a network primetime hit. What are their numbers? You know, like? I... Yeah, it is interesting because I, I I don't know for certain, but I know that like Fox is a good example mm-hmm. that I can think of off the top of my head. Fox basically considers a hit these days to be around two to three million viewers. Damn. Yeah. Now that's a little different because Fox doesn't is still even even today does not necessarily have the same exposure as like ABC, NBC, CBS. Sure. So I, it would be interesting to know what NBC considers. Now, obviously, for huge shows like a lot of the reality shows that draw big numbers, you're still looking at like fifteen to twenty million viewers. Mm-hmm. But in the context of yeah, narrative television, you'd have to think that eight million viewers today would be pretty damn respectable. Yeah. And so it's it's it's. It's hard to think that even with that, like still, like they almost got canceled. Yeah, in, in a couple of episodes. Uh, speaking of, and to bring it back around home, you probably know this. Uh, what is the most? <laughs> what is the most viewed television event of all time? Would that be the final episode? Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. What is the final episode of Mash for correct. 500, Alex? You are correct. <laughs> Uh, there was some, I can't remember what it was. I can't remember uh, if it was a presidential debate in this last election or the one before. There was some event where people were actually people legitimately thought it was going to surpass Mash. For yeah. The, for the for the most uh, viewed event live on TV, and I was just kind of uh, I haven't watched Mash in years, but I'm a huge fan of the show. I think objectively, it made yeah. one of the best television shows ever. Um, for sure. And so. I don't know if we'll ever get there. It'll be a sad day when that is surpassed as the most viewed television event of all time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I can't think of anything else that would kind of duplicate that same success. Um, I know the final episode of Cheers came pretty damn close. Oh, di- okay, I'll look that up and, and see. Yeah, the final episode of Cheers was pretty was pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know the final episode of Cheers within it was it was within a couple of weeks of the final episode of Quantum Leap. I think. Oh yeah, that's that would be right. That would be right because they both wrapped up in also, in, in ninety three. Yeah, and also both on NBC. Both on it. Yeah, one was a lot yeah. more objectively successful than the other. One indeed was. <laughs> but, but there was not a Cheers podcast, let alone three Cheers podcasts. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, yeah. we should wrap well, up. We should wrap up and leap out of here. Indeed. All right, let's do it, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you uh, next week or in a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, baby Fane pending uh, for a little miracle. Hey, I like the way you just did that. Yeah. Like the baby's gonna be a little miracle. miracle. Yeah. See what yeah. I did there? I totally planned that. I didn't plan that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. All right, let's leap out of here. Thanks. All Take right. care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at www.quantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time.